This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. We also know that the main perpetrators of these crimes against humanity are corporations, and the bigger they are, the greater danger they pose. But when those corporations influence the legal system in order to craft business-friendly laws and then work hand-in-hand with elected representatives to fine-tune regulations to best serve profits and not people, within that kind of corporatocracy is when the private sector really turns on the bottom-level abuse. The worst part, however, is when that is all done in relative secrecy, without anyone knowing how to circumvent, or without every anyone knowing how to circumvent pesky obstacles like oversight, transparency, accountability, and responsibility. You know, the alleged hallmarks, the foundations of democracy. Only there is an even worse part, worse part. All of that has already happened, and corporations rule over whatever democracy is left in the United States. That rule continues to grow. In a few minutes, we will have the return of not one, but two guests who will be speaking with us. Claire Provost and Matt Kennard are co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Claire is co-founder and co-director of the new nonprofit Institute for Journalism and Social Change. The Institute is a pioneering new international learn and do initiative that is bringing together current and future journalists, researchers, and activists to scale up impact, inclusion, and innovations in media, media ecosystems globally in service of journalism's core social purpose which is to support democracy. Find out more about the Institute at theijsc.org. Follow them on Twitter at the underscore IJSC. Claire was Open Democracy's head of global investigations and founder of the Tracking the Backlash Project, which investigates anti-democratic movements and tactics threatening women's and LGBTIQ rights around the world. Previously, she was Open Democracy's gender and sexuality editor, worked at The Guardian as a data journalist, and was a fellow at the Center for Investigative Journalism at the University of London, Goldsmiths. This is her first book. You can find out more about Claire at her website, claireprovost.com. That's C-L-A-I-R-E, provost.com. Following her on Twitter, at Claire Provost. Matt Kennard is co-founder and chief investigator at Declassified UK, a news outlet investigating British foreign policy. You can find out more about Declassified UK by visiting declassifieduk.org or by following them on Twitter, at Declassified UK. Like Claire, Matt was also a fellow at the Center for Investigative Journalism, where he was also a director. Matt worked as a staff writer for the Financial Times in Washington, Washington D.C., New York City, and London. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Canard Matt. That's K-E-N-N-A-R-D Matt. Matt is the author of two earlier acclaimed books, including 2012's Irregular Army, How the U.S. Military Recruited Neo-Nazis, Gang Members, and Criminals to Fight the War on Terror, and 2015's The Racket, A Rogue Reporter versus America's Elite. Matt has been on This Is Hell in the past to discuss both those books when they were published. In fact, on our Patreon podcast this week, I believe we are playing our 2012 interview with Matt Kennard. Again, Irregular Army, 
how the U.S. military recruited neo-Nazis, gang members, and criminals to fight the war on terror. Claire has also been on This Is Hell in the past, back in March 2019, to discuss an open democracy article she wrote with Adam Ramsey titled Revealed. Trump-linked U.S. Christian fundamentalists pour millions of dark money into Europe, boosting the far right. Also, a little bit of our warning to all of our listeners out there. Do not play the silent coup drinking game during today's interview. I will be saying the word silent coup so many times that you won't make it through the first 15 minutes of the interview without being flat on your face drunk. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how are you? Anything new in your life since the last time we spoke? Yeah, uh, about uh, 30 minutes ago, I got to see the neighboring restaurant uh, carry goat carcasses <laughs> in and uh, so looks like a stolen shopping cart. They kind of fill up from the uh, be- black van. Yeah, it was glorious. It's really amazing. <laughs> and the shopping cart is always weird because you'll go over there, you'll see the shopping cart, and it'll be like a Dominic's shopping right. cart, like a place that's been out of business for years and years. Yeah, that place is great. Farm City, a couple doors down from us, really amazing, amazing butcher shop in the neighborhood. Uh, Vijay Prashad, the famous author and sociologist, uh, he was on the show one time and said that that was his secret go-to place when he's in the neighborhood. If you're ever in on great. Devon Avenue in the Westridge neighborhood, go check out uh, Farm City. One of the amazing things about that place and the way that they deal with their meat is... They only order enough meat for that day. They never throw away anything. The food waste over there is so slim. It's really amazing. So check out Farm City, our neighbor over here. But far more, well, wait, I got to tell you something. So I had a a doctor's appointment yesterday in preparation for what will hopefully be the final operation in my far too long 15-month ordeal that began in an ER and led to an emergency surgery in order to save my freaking life. As of now, that last step in recovery will be taking place sometime in the middle of next month, in mid-June. Although this final procedure is its minimally invasive and it's outpatient, meaning I can go home after it's over and I will not have to stay a night in the increasingly nightmarish hospitals that we have here in the States. But my family physician suggests I take a few days off as even the most minimally invasive procedures are still invasive. So look for me to be missing a few days in the middle of June. I'll keep you all updated on that, but far more important than what will finally be the last step in my long road to recovery. Hopefully, Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience. Why is this hell? Why is this hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio or you can email chuck at this is hell.com as always we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth dan what is jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth 
Jeff foils the Junk Hunters and their Inquisition. Now I like that. Junk Hunters Inquisition, my favorite show on the History Channel. Earlier this week, producer Will Ippen announced this week's Hangover Cure, which is Do Not Nap. In that cure, which we found at the dreadful British paper, The Sun's website, Hannah Shore, a quote-unquote sleep expert, whatever the hell that is, at a company called Silent Night, the UK's leading bed brand, they quote her saying that the day after the big night out, try not to nap unless essential. Access natural light throughout the day, like going for a walk to stop the feeling of wanting a nap. Then prioritize sleep at night, ensuring you go to bed when you are tired to get back into a routine. So I joked about the fact that someone, Hannah Shore, who works for a leading bed company, and likely a huge corporation as it is the biggest bed brand in the UK, would suggest not taking a nap and wondered if, I wondered if sleep expert Hannah Shore would be long for her job. But I have been corrected. Generally, when taking a nap, one naps on a couch or maybe in a comfortable chair. Beds are for sleeping. And apparently, sleep expert Shore was, in fact, representing the deep pocket interests of Big Bed, who are apparently in competition with Big Couch and Big Comfy Chair. I stand corrected, and apparently Big Bed is anti-nap. Who knew? Which reminds me, we really must get a certain person on the show. Trisha Hersey, author of Rest is Resistance and founder of the Nap Ministry. So I immediately sent Trisha an interview request and we will see what happens because screw Big Bed, I want to take a nap. Breaking news, Trisha Hersey will not be joining us here on This Is Hell. She got back to us immediately with an auto response that starts with, I don't participate in podcasts. They don't fit into my time management goals. Well, first of all, Trisha, we are not only a podcast we were originally a radio show and we are a radio show on four different radio stations here in the united states we're and one in canada three in the states and one in canada so we are not only a podcast we are a radio show and will always hopefully be a radio show as well but trisha's time management goals include naps so maybe she can't do the show and maybe i'm very, very jealous. We got a guest suggestion from Gregory Kay, who writes us at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com. And if you do, we will likely read whatever it is that you have to say on air. And if you send us a guest suggestion, as Gregory did, and we have that guest on the show, then we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Gregory Kay writes, Dear Truck, Dear Chuck, or Truck, Recently, a friend shared with me a video for an upcoming production of The Crucible at Invictus theater company in Chicago's Edgewater neighborhood. In the video, the director, Charles Askenizer, says Arthur Miller's play, which uses the witch hysteria of Salem from 1692 as a parable about 1950s McCarthyism, is, quote, about a society that is destroying itself, that's eating itself. Seventy years after Miller's play first premiered, the play is just as relevant, Gregory writes, to our currently divisive America where we're pointing fingers and naming names, and our politics is as hysterical as the Red Scare era. I think it would be an interesting conversation to have Charles on the show as a guest, maybe with one of the actors, to talk about their approach to the play and how it resonates with them as they present it for today's audience. The play opens May 15th, that was this past Monday, as a storefront theater Invictus is punching above its weight and recently won a slew of Jeff Awards for Chicago Theater. 
I'd love to hear from them. Remember the house on the rock. My best, Gregory. So thanks, Gregory. And while I'm not sure about an interview, as unbelievably all of our shows are currently booked with guests throughout the end of the month, all of our guests are booked for the entire month of May, but we will give them a plug. The Crucible is being performed at Invictus Theater at 1106 West Thorndale, which is indeed in the Edgewater neighborhood here in Chicago. Performances are at 7 p.m. Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays with a 3 p.m. matinee on Sundays, and they'd run through Sunday, June 11th. You can find out more about the play, including how to get tickets, by going to Invictus Theater co.com that's theater spelled the european way r-e instead of e-r and listener gregory k suggests you check it out if you live in the neighborhood support local award-winning new theater in the community if you don't come visit the area and check out live drama you too can contact us via email at chuck at this send us a message via facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or dm us via twitter at this is hell radio and if you do like i said we'll likely share whatever you write on air coming up the quiet corporate takeover of the world we will have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. This is hell. Prove us wrong. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to prove us wrong, especially now that corporations uh, have basically taken over the world. Maybe you haven't heard. But that's not your fault. Corporations took over secretly, under the radar of everybody, except, of course, the people who purposely and intentionally have done everything they can to undermine democracy and take whatever power the people have and give it to unelected corporate leaders. Here to help us understand how the hell all this happened, Claire Provost and Matt Kennard are co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy First. Welcome back, Claire. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us again. It's great to have you on the show, and welcome back to the show, Matt. Good to be back. Always Thanks, great. Always great to have you on the show, Matt. I uh, we're going to be sharing the first interview that we did with you uh, later this week on Patreon again for Irregular Army: How the U.S. Military Recruited Neo Nazis, Gang Members, and Criminals to Fight the War on Terror. And uh, we really appreciate both of you being on. But let's start with you, Claire. You mentioned meeting investigative reporter Gavin McFadden, McFadden, sorry, who uh, covered the Nicaraguan Revolution before moving to London and becoming more recently known for his local support of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. She was also a fierce advocate for Chelsea Manning. You point out how Gavin wrote that investigative reporting demands a reporter's moral outrage at injustice incompetence, brutality, and misery. But for many journalists, he cautioned, their work is simply a job. Their interest is in lapdog uh, confidences and dining with the powerful, those who passionately uh, and uh, want to provide a voice for those without one and who fight hypocrisy and exploitation are sadly rare. Gavin fretted about consequences for the public at large, deprived of critical perspectives, on the activities of powerful players in our societies. So, Claire, back in the 1990s, when our show started, six months after the signing of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, there was already a growing concern dating back to the 1980s about the conglomeration, corporate conglomeration of the media. With the TC Act, it was the even further commodification and financialization of media that meant cost-cutting, and the first to be likely cut 
everybody was speculating at the time and became true, would be the most resource-intensive forms of journalism, foreign bureaus and investigative journalism. So, Claire, how do you think our lack of access to critical perspectives on our society's powerful players through investigative journalism has affected contemporary domestic politics? How has our lack of knowledge about the powerful uh, and how they operate affected our current state of politics here in the States? Yeah, well, um, thank you for that introduction and for bringing up Gavin as well. Uh, the late, great Gavin McFadden was such a, a tremendous figure um, in our both Matt and I, our careers, but also in our lives. Um, and uh, the it, to your question, um, uh, I wanted to say two things. One, um, you know, you're really right to bring up some of this history and um, how there people have been warning about corporate takeover of our institutions and creation of new corporate institutions, new new infrastructure for the extension and exercise of corporate power. People have been warning about this for a long time. Um, and a lot of what we found in our investigations that led to this book um, was is, is, is essentially about these warnings being very prescient and very true. Um, and a lot of what ha was warned has come to pass. So from what you mentioned about the corporate concentration of the media and closing space for investigative journalism, as you mentioned, there were concerns and warnings about that as it happened. Um, uh, similarly, there were concerns and warnings about the construction of new international legal and other systems that enable corporations to further exercise their power. Uh, the, the potential consequences for democracy of these uh, trends and, and institutions and infrastructure were forewarned. Um, and that's a really chilling thing, you know, to, to, to see the state we're in right now and that we we kind of knew it knew it was coming as as societies, um, and you know, for for journalism and for access to information. I mean, it's really essential that every citizen, resident, and voter has an understanding of of where power lies and how decisions are made. Um, and without that understanding, you can get a sense that things don't add up, um, but then start to either reach for conspiracy theories or have hostile actors push you towards conspiracy theories. Um, and so an understanding of where power lies and how it operates, I mean, this is a very fundamental thing that the media should be providing citizens and democracies. Um, and that and that a lot to a large extent we've it, it has failed. And it hasn't failed only because of these dynamics within um, media the media industry it's also it's also a problem because uh, there are um, the, the the systems for example of corporate power that we look at in the book um, they are as you mentioned shadowy secretive um, non-transparent um, uh, they, they not created in 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 um, in the interests of democracy so not created with all of the um the, those attributes and transparency etc um, and so you have a combination of anti-democratic systems and a media industry that's not up to task to to um, interrogate those. And the consequence for for individuals going about their daily lives is a, a lack of understanding and some sort of confusion and an, uh, and um, uh, vulnerability to be manipulated by conspiracy theories. 
And those concerns and warnings were, you know, dismissed as left wing and and anti-capitalist as well. So, Matt, how was this coup able to be kept secret? Does it have to do with the disappearance of things like investigative journalism? Did the corporate conglomeration of the media and its changing focus from the press performing a public service to be a check against unchecked power, to some degree being a guardian or at least an advocate for democracy, was the market's impact on journalism creating an environment that is accommodating to a silent coup by global corporate power overthrowing democracy? Was this just a fertile environment because of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, because of deregulation within, or I should say re-regulation within the media? Was this just a fertile environment for this to happen? Or do you think this was all part of the some larger plan? Uh, uh, my, my take is that it's the latter. So <clears throat> firstly, uh, this corporate coup, goes back way further than the 90s and even the Second World War. And in fact, I think that if you were going to start it somewhere, you'd start it in 16th century England, not far from where I'm sitting now in London, where the kind of uh, modern corporation as we know it was was invented uh, in its modern form. And that was when the, the first joint stock company was given a royal charter in the UK. And that allowed for tradable shares in companies um, and and kind of unleashed the corporate form uh, on the road to where it is now. There were plenty of other legislative and uh, judicial decisions which created the corporation that we know now. But this is a this is a battle that has been fought by the corporate form against the state and against the people uh, for four, over four hundred years. And uh, it's uh, where I think that where we sit now in 2023 is that coup has been pretty much completed um, it, it, in the in the, in the 16th century, and then in the 17th, it was the East India Company was this sort of flagship company that uh, everyone knew about. It, it, contro- it had a it was given a charter by the by uh, Queen Elizabeth the first that gave it the, the a monopoly on trading for most the majority the majority of the globe. This was one company. It grew into a huge, uh, monstrous uh, empire, uh, which ruled India. Uh, had in India uh, had a um, an army which was three times the size of the British army, um, and, uh, and 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 ruled uh, in in a really obscene and oppressive way until the Indian Mutiny of 1857, and then it was shut down, and the Queen and Queen Victoria became the Empress of India, but. That, so, so this battle has been fought for, uh, for for centuries. In the 19th century was really when uh, it, it became completely unleashed from the state because you stopped needing a charter from the, the Crown or Parliament to create a corporation. Uh, they enacted what was called limited liability. So investors would not have all their assets vulnerable to um, uh, to being taken if, if the company failed. It was only the invested money that they could lose. Various different things changed that unleashed the corporation. And then what you see after the Second World War is really the birth of the multinational. I mean, the multinational existed before, but in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, so the IMF and World Bank, and then a couple of years later, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs was really a system which was set up by the, the British and the Americans, primarily the Americans, but John Maynard Keynes was 
debating, was negotiating with Harry Dexter White, who was representing the Americans at Bretton Woods in 1944. And this system was about creating uh, a corporate-friendly, harmonized global market that would allow corporations to, to go into new markets and spread capitalism, because obviously this was at the, the beginning of the Cold War as well. And the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs was, was about um, uh, uh, enforcing free trade around the world, so getting rid of tariffs uh, and other uh, obstacles to free trade, um, which obviously for multinationals uh, allowed them to, 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 to enter new markets in a much easier way. And we focus on, and, and this also coincided with um, uh, the, for, the crumbling of former empires after the Second World War. So the British Empire fell, or other European empires, in terms of having garrisons of troops in a country and basically having a satrap ruler that did what he was told. He, he was told by by the uh, the imperial power that that kind of was crumbling that system. So what happened was these investors, these corporations that had interests all over the world in the poor world, needed to create a system which could operate above the heads of um, rebellious uh, peoples and liberation leaders who were coming into power and newly independent states. And that's what happens. And kind of we start the book. <clears throat> with in that period in the 50s and 60s basically when the independence uh, uh, was really picking up and country after country was becoming independent they set up these systems that enshrined their rights uh, and created what Thomas Friedman called a golden straitjacket you know his argument was that it was good for the poor of the world but obviously our argument is the opposite but what it meant was that it was it, 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 it they wanted to create a system where it was impossible for leaders to move uh in the interest of their people against corporate power and they won that was the that's the, that's the thing that there was very it, it was done uh very secretively and it was done in a way that basically bypassed um uh, any kind of democratic system or any kind of uh accountability from the, the global population so there's there's two i'll just finish with this there's two institutions which we really focus on heavily in the book one is um, the Investor State Dispute Settlement System, ISDS, which was set up in 1966. The, the world, there's, a, there's a branch of the World Bank called ICSID, the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. Um, that was set up in 1966, and it was explicit about wanting to create a system whereby multinationals had recourse to a supranational venue to take countries to court if they enacted policies that these corporations didn't like. So if they uh, uh, um, nationalized a, uh, an industry and took a, and, and uh, expropriated the assets of a corporation or even things like denied them a mine, uh, an environmental permit to mine or raise the minimum wage, there's, there's no restrictions on what it could be. If they can argue that it impacts their investor rights and their contractual obligations, then they can sue the government. That was set up in 1966. Um, the other one was the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector lending arm of the World Bank. And that was set up in 1956. So you can see, and it was quite conscious, you know, that this was about enforcing corporate rule around the world. And barely anyone covered it at the time. Barely anyone even knows about ICSID now, which is incredible. Um, and at, because it's a shadow legal system, which is one of the most important and potent ways that corporate power is enforced around the world because not only are countries susceptible to being sued by multinational corporations for enacting sovereign policies in the interest of their populations, 
that's the ones that get to court. The what the the more uh, sort of insidious aspect of it is that there is a huge amount of regulatory and policy making chill around the world because governments are scared to enforce policies or to enact policies which inf which 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 will hurt corporations' profits because they don't want to get taken to these courts and sued for sometimes billions of dollars. There's a case against Honduras now, which is a very poor country in Central America. There's a there's a case. Uh, from a company uh, which is for eight, uh, 11 billion dollars against Honduras, they're taking them to to court for not uh, for not letting them build a, a special economic zone in their in in Honduras. So uh, this, it, but barely anyone knows about it. Um, and this and that, how this, I, I don't think it's just the failings of the media. I think that the whole system is set up to enforce corporate rule and that means that the governments are not representing people they're representing the corporations uh, and that's an important part because the governments aren't telling their people about these systems even though they're in infringing on their sovereignty because they're working for the corporations that's how we've got to a situation now where it really is a conceptual error to think of the state in the west but also in the developing world as separate to the corporation they are now one and the same and the state uh, is much is much more acting in the interest of the corporation than it is in in, uh, in the interest of its population. And I'll just finish with this: one of the most profound takeaways I had from the reporting experience that me and Claire had uh, to, to produce the book, which was over many years, and we went to twenty five countries on five continents. So we saw a real cross section of the global population, really, and we saw uh, loads of struggles against these systems that we were covering. When I was interviewing um, peasants in Colombia or Tanzania who were getting their land taken or getting uh, 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 threatened by corporations who had hired uh, paramilitaries to, to kill trade unionists or activists against um, uh, resource projects or whatever it was, I'd always ask them, what is the government doing for you um, to protect you from the corporation who is doing this? And every single time they'd say, the government doesn't work for us, it works for the corporation. And that is a that was a kind of uh, a real a realization I had that not not only is the the state isn't weakened in terms of its uh, sort of nominal power it's still there but it's working not for the people it's working for the corporation um, and that is a really really scary situation to be in because the 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 the, the structures that we that I've described they've got so big and so powerful and so global that it's impossible for any state uh, to go up against it. And sorry, I will finish with this, I promise, because I keep saying I'll finish, but I'm not finishing. <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of leaders that have come up against this system and tried to push back, mainly in Latin America. So one we look at in the book is, is Bolivia under Evo Morales, <clears throat> who was elected in 2005 in Bolivia uh, and had a really radical anti-corporate um, policies that involved nationalization and also renegotiating contracts which had basically just allowed multinational corporations to loot the country for 500 years um and it was quite interesting it, it was a, it was another way of understanding how these systems work when you look at someone trying to extricate themselves from them because uh, he was one of a few leaders in latin america that tried to withdraw from ICSID, that 
branch of the World Bank where these cases are heard. And then you find out, well, actually, it's not that easy to do that. There's what they call sunset clauses where they you, you might you might say you leave, but they don't, that, that doesn't actually happen for 20, 10 or 20 years later you, by, by the contractual obligations, which means by that time, there's probably another government in power that maybe doesn't have the, the, the desire to get rid of them. So you realise it's a real straitjacket. Um, and then obviously as well, if you go up against these corporations, your credit lines are pulled because most of the credit um, you need for investment or or whatever it is, is coming from the Bretton Woods institutions. So you're, you're kind of stuck in this debt trap. Um, Evo Morales, particularly in Bolivia, was a model that, that they were did it really successfully and ended up being praised by the World Bank and IMF for their poverty reduction programs and their growth. They had huge growth levels. But um yeah, it's a it's a it's a long, long centuries long. That's how we need to understand it, and it's a centuries long silent coup that has kind of reached this denouement. And I think the democracy, as uh, it, as we understand it, doesn't exist, and that is mainly because power is located in uh, the private sphere now, um, and has colonized every single part of our government, but also other parts of society, culture, um, uh, education, health in, in the UK. The NHS is being sold off now to corporations, so. Yeah, it's not a good, it's not a very optimistic picture. No, and uh, post-colonialism, there was no real post-colonialism. It seems like the neo-colonialism that followed post uh, that followed World War II was actually just colonialism privatized. And if we don't know about the stories that you're pointing toward, like the... Uh, case with the Honduran special economic zone that would be that's for right now 11 billion dollars that would be absolutely economically devastating to the country of Honduras which would likely lead to Hondurans trying to leave Honduras and heading for possibly the United States border but these kinds of impacts on immigration policy, say, uh, through corporate control, are not ever brought up within the media. So, Claire, you write how you and uh, Matt looked into the international aid and development system that you'd both wanted to dig into from the start, learning how it has helped corporations to expand or build them out when they've struggled. So, Claire, from your and Matt's research, who is the international aid and development system as currently constructed assisting? Who is it meant to benefit? Who does benefit? Because when we think of aid and development, we think of assisting the poor. In aid, is aid and development not helping the poor, but helping the already wealthy? Because I think that would completely change the conversation around aid and development. Yeah, so the... The aid and development um, world is uh, not completely homogenous, and um, there there are there are certainly, and it should be said, certainly some good projects and some very well-meaning people in that sector. Um, and uh, it's not that everyone goes into the sector wanting to expand corporate power around the world, but what we what we found in the book is. I guess two things. One, you start from today and you look at what's happening today and you see um, around the world how uh, aid and development finance have, have and are enabling uh, multinational companies to break into new markets, to deal with dissenting populations, to smooth over, try to smooth over relationships um, uh, uh, with people who don't like their expansion, um, uh, helping them um, uh, expand regardless, uh, uh, all, all sorts of things. So, so um, if you start from today, you see 
you, you see that picture. If you go back in time, you see that that was always the intent. Um, so before the International Finance uh, uh, Corporation that Matt mentioned, that branch of the World Bank, um, before that was set up in the 50s, that's a, a what's called a development finance institution um, under with a poverty reduction mandate officially. Uh, before that was set up, uh, the UK set up their colonial development corporation. Um, and so that the, the, in, in this case, it's it, you see a bit of Washington following London, which I think is also really interesting when you think about like global power dynamics, uh, people around the world point to the US still like now and generations past as being a, a extremely unaccountable, extraordinarily powerful force. Um, expanding corporate power, but in in the aid and development um, sector, you really see it quite clearly that um, it begins as a colonial project under colonialism. While colonialism is still in place, um, development poverty reduction uh, programs are set up um, that are also intended to bring colonial companies benefits. Um, but you start seeing this this uh, use of development and and uh, well being. Um, as a propaganda tool uh, to support the, the growth of corporate interests. That happens under colonialism already. And then when colonialism officially ends, quote unquote, officially ends, um, the Colonial Development Corporation doesn't close. Um, it just gets a new name. It becomes the Commonwealth Development Corporation. Then the, uh, then the International Finance Corporation opens and then others open. Um, and they, these are very big parts of the aid and development system that are not what you think of when you think of aid. When you think of aid, what you are think of usually is what both the right and the left tell you, um, that it is effectively a transfer of money from rich to poor, like it's a redistributive system, and um, the left likes that and the right does not. Um, but they both traffic in this kind of this myth that aid is a simple transfer of cash. And the reality is that it's just so much more complex. Uh, most aid does not go direct from rich country to poor country. Um, most aid goes through a lot of like very complicated chains of different organizations. Some of them are NGOs, but also private contractors that are taking profits. Um, and then, and then also in some cases, private companies are the effectively the recipients of aid or beneficiaries of aid. Um, and the that is uh, not something that we're that is explained to us very often. But also, it's not explained very often that that was that was the intent from the beginning. Um, that this is not an example. What we saw with the aid and development system. It's not really a story of corporate capture of aid and development, as if it was a good system that was recently corporate uh, captured by anti-democratic actors. It was anti-democratic from the beginning. So, Matt, in your opinion, what do you think is what causes this vulnerability of the type of democracy that currently exists to this kind of not as Claire was saying, not a corporate takeover, but almost a complicity in this process. What makes our democratic pro the the democratic process that we experience today, which is far short of what real democracy is, how much does uh, how uh, how is that vulnerable to this kind of quote unquote takeover? Well, I think that it's vulnerable basically because the corporations have all the money. 
Um, and when you have that level of, when you have those kind of resources, you can buy politicians, you can penetrate uh, judicial systems, you can create think tanks um, to, to make uh, theories that benefit your interests, uh, common sense in inverted commas. So the state, uh, and as I said, like this is a dynamic that's, that's played out over centuries and they've got such a high degree of power now, particularly after the Second World War with the advent of the modern multinational, that um, they control the world's resources from oil to food to whatever it is. Corporations run it all. So when you've got that, when you talk about that level, and they are conscious, there are there are classing, there are class, there there's a there, there's a corporate class, and they do create a world which will carry on enriching themselves um, in in quite explicit ways. So <clears throat> it's quite interesting for in the states, for example, in the sixties there was quite a lot of pushback. So to go back to your de uh, what democratic society, why can't it push back? There was a lot of um pushback in the 60s uh, uh it, we're off we, it's very well known the civil rights movement um but what's not talked about as well is that the the, the uh, labor was really powerful and really active in the 60s that was part of that um tumult that has kind of been erased but corporations were really worried about it and private interests and in fact there was something called the power memorandum which was written in 1971 by Lewis Powell, who went on to be a Supreme Court judge. And he wrote it to the, the Chamber of Commerce and saying, look, corporations are going to, well, there's, there's a crisis. We're going to lose if we don't hit back against this outbreak of democracy, um, an outbreak of labour power, uh, and these, the, uh, essentially the discourse. There was a lot of talk. He talks about how um, students and normal people are talking down business, you know, which is way against the American uh, uh, myth that they like to project. So he, he said in this memorandum, we need to fight back. And you saw that in the in the late 60s and, and 70s as well, huge amounts of think tanks and different institutions to push out corporate propaganda, to push out corporate friendly economics were established from Heritage Foundation to Cato. There's loads of them. And they won that battle because they had the power to put huge amounts of resources in and it became common sense and it's limited the political spectrum now if you look at the what the democrats were saying for example in the 60s uh, and even nixon in the 70s um it's way to the left on a lot of economic stuff to what you to what democrats say now even the republicans you know uh that and, and that's because corporations have had basically controlled the discourse because they they fund all these different institutions and they they are basically the interests behind discourse generation and that goes for the media as well obviously the media the mass media is corporate controlled um so uh that's how they've done it uh it's just merely a resource thing and that's why it's hard to fight back and the only way in my opinion you do fight back the only um sort of uh, opposite force that can push back on a on a, on a grand scale is organized labor because um that has been the major force for progressive change and for um uh, uh fighting the corporate power throughout history um and but again corporations are, are are alive to that fact and have worked to completely fracture um organized labor labor uh, uh member uh, union, union memberships way down in the states since the 70s 
Um, it's much lower in the private sector that, than it is in the public sector because they don't encourage it, obviously. Um, so, uh, it, and, and what, what, what we get now is kind of a uh, disparate resistance. So there's this book, um, <laughs> there's other, like there's small pockets of resistance, but nothing on the scale that would ever worry the corporation, you know? Um, and, that's, and, and that's also because, sorry, the other, the other power center, which historically could push back against the corporation, the state, uh, which in theory should, is more powerful than the corporation, but isn't in reality, that has now been co-opted by the corporation, as I mentioned. So when you have all the um, possible uh, forces that can constrain corporate power co-opted by corporate power, then their control is total. Um, and that is uh, uh, something that uh, the left needs to uh, grapple with because... Uh, I don't know the answers to it, but I, I I do think that this is a subject that is kind of um, not given the prominence that it should be by the left. I mean, uh, before September 11th, um, terrorist attacks, there was a there was a in the 90s, there was a huge and what was called anti-globalization, but really was anti-corporate globalization movement, you know, and we had the Zapatistas in 1994 rising up. Uh, on January 1st, on the first day of NAFTA, people were all talking about free trade agreements, um, which are corporate rights enshrining agreements. They were talking about um, corporate power and corporate rule, and they were talking about the different systems. The WTO was the ones, what meetings were being, were, had huge demonstrations like in Seattle. But then that all kind of got um, uh, destroyed by September 11th and the war on terror and the left's attention got, as it should have done, got turned to trying to stop the war in Iraq. Uh, um, and I think that we need to re-energize and, and re-educate the left on the fact that this, that, that corporate coup that they were, that we were fighting in the nineties is, is not only still here, it's, it's worse now and it's getting away with a lot more because no one's really concentrating on it uh, uh, on the left. Um, and I'll just finish with this. I think that, it is impossible to look, to understand our society, our world, if you're not looking at it through the lens of corporate power and also through the lens of the corporate coup that has been happening for 400 years. Because the balance of forces now are so um, tilted towards corporations that all the concepts we understand, even on the left, think about democracy. People use democracy unironically to describe uh, Britain and, and the United States. They're, they're hollow. They don't mean anything because whoever we vote for, they're gonna. Then no one's gonna take on the entrenched corporate power which runs our societies. And we need to really have a uh, 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 an idea and and some kind of educative program and a theoretical program to try and understand how you combat that when when all the forces, economic, um, military, because we also talk about private military. Um, forces are on, on one side how do you combat that um, so that's an open question I think that the first we need to just raise awareness to be honest we are speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard who are co-authors of Silent Coup how corporations overthrew democracy you can follow uh, 
Claire on Twitter at Claire Provost. You can find out more about her at her website, ClaireProvost.com. And you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Kennard. And find out more about Declassified UK, where he works, by going to decla- at Declassified UK on Twitter and uh, going to their website, declassifieduk.org. Also, you can go to uh, where Claire also works, which is the new nonprofit institute for, so- for jo- journalism and social change. You can find out more about the institute at theijsc.org and follow them on Twitter at the underscore IJSC. So, Claire, even, you know, privatization, obviously, it leads to... It's like a death by a million cuts. It leads to corporate control and the undermining of democracy. Even, Claire, even if the public recognized the silent coup, even if they saw it as a coup and something that should be challenged because there's no guarantee of that. Even if a popular revolution rose up against what the public started viewing as a state of such a like apartheid-like inequality, how much can that power actually be challenged? How revolution-proof is the corporate power that you see as behind the silent coup? Oh, it's not revolution-proof, I don't think, at all. I think um, I think it's really important to, um, uh, and you see this, I think, in the book, that these, uh, like, the international corporate justice system, um, but also international strategies to enable corporate control over resources that, and how they're allocated, territories and how they're governed, the use of force, all of these were created by people, you know, humans created these things, and humans can uncreate them. Um, I think that is like an important starting point that, you know, the the built the the world that has been built, it was built by people, and it can be unbuilt and rebuilt. Um, However, um, you know, we I think we normal people um, often think about today, and the near future and what needs to happen right now and in the near future. And in contrast, the the architects of the international systems and and, um, infrastructure and strategies that we look at in the book, they were thinking um, in generational terms. They weren't thinking necessarily only about what needs to happen today and tomorrow, but also what the world needs to look like in 100 years and 50 years. Um, we have examples of this in the book from both from you know bankers and lawyers who are at the in the 50s before the World Bank takes up the idea of this investor state dispute settlement system. Um, be, before that gets institutionalized at the bank in the mid 60s, there were attempts to institutionalize it at the UN via the UN and the OECD didn't work. Um, uh, there was there was enough resistance to stop it um, in in those spaces. Uh, and these ideas were, were were developed over a long period of time. You know, it, it start it it starts even earlier. You know, twenties European capitalist elites start realizing that the ground beneath their feet is shifting. That that independence is coming in the colonies. We need to start preparing for this. Labor movements are rising in in more more industrialized countries. We need to start responding to this. So that the the world that we see now and the corp the 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 corporate um uh empire that we are living in now which is really it's a really a political project it's not just about money it's also about power and how who makes decisions who decides what goes what doesn't when exceptions are made etc um that that political project took a really long time to like it 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 took time to build um 
really is a bit of a normative judgment. I'm not sure, but it, it took time, you know, it, it took generations to build. And I think unbuilding it and, and rebuilding something more fair and, and, and just it, I think we also need to recognize that's a long-term project. Um, it's not something that we can, there is no one that you can elect tomorrow that is going to undo the corporate coup. It's not possible. Um, there's no, there, also because it's a transnational corporate coup, it's a global political project. Um, it needs to be tackled on a transnational level. It's really hard for a single country to extricate themselves from these different mechanisms. Um, and when there have been attempts before, uh, uh, that that had some possibility of succeeding, they they involve transnational action. So I'm thinking about, for example, you know, before the World Bank sets up this legal system, institutionalizes this legal legal system, and it was blocked at the OECD and the UN. That was because countries got together and blocked it. Um, at the World Bank, countries, developing countries, tried to get together and block it, but then the World Bank adopted a whole range of crafty anti-democratic methods to prevent that resistance from uniting, um, to prevent information flowing between countries, et cetera. They knew that if resistance united, that would be a problem. So I think that's a clue for us, that resistance, resistance uniting is a problem for this system when it unites across borders. And it also, I think, echoes what Matt was just saying about the ultra-globalization moment and movements. Those were transnational movements um, and, and transnational campaigns. And there was transnational flow of information about both uh, threats uh, by uh, corporations and corporate systems, but also resistance to them, that information was being spread. And so, and, and as Matt mentioned, you know, September 11th happened, but also those movements were under extraordinary attack. Um, and, you know, people were killed at some of those protests, you know, and I'm thinking like the, the G8 protests in Genoa, people were killed and other examples, people, like that was, a that was, but transnational resistance, I think like has been, um, feared by the, the the corporate empire. And so I think that's a really big clue. A long-term project across borders. Matt, you and Claire also write that cases were still pending against Canada, included one filed by the Lone Pine Energy Company from the U.S. after the province of Quebec introduced a temporary moratorium on fracking under the St. Lawrence River pending further environmental studies. Analysis from the Canada, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives suggested that overall, almost two-thirds of foreign investors' claims against Canada had involved challenges to environmental or resource management measures, laws, and regulations. So, Matt, more than anything, is this an anti-environmental movement because I noticed that these all these talks started in around 1964 a little bit earlier obviously but uh, when it comes to these uh, decision making tribunals they all started around the same time as much of the environmental movement started so is are the two connected is this a corporate backlash against environmentalism yes but <clears throat> sorry <coughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I got a bit of cough there. It's bigger than that, I think. It's big. It's basically there was a a, a documentary and book that was um, uh, published <clears throat> in two thousand and three or four called "The Corporation," <clears throat> and what it did was it tried to psychoanalyze the co the corporation and say if the corporation was a person, because obviously corporate personhood is a 
is a concept in uh, which has been enshrined um, in in American law, effectively. Um, if it was a person, uh, it can exercise free speech, like through the Citizens United ruling, United ruling, and, and other rights. Um, what kind of person would it be? And the book goes through that and, and concludes that it's a uh, it would be a psychopath. And I think that's just an obvious uh, conclusion that anyone would take. You know, a share a, a corporation's interest has to be by law um, to um, to uh, uh, maximize profits for shareholders. Uh, when I say by law, there was a famous ruling uh, in I think it was the Michigan Supreme Court in the early 20th century where. The Dodge brothers took uh, uh, Ford um, to uh, to court because Ford didn't want to give um, all the profits to shareholders. He wanted to do uh, do public works and other things with them. And the court said, actually, found in favour of the Dodge brothers and said, no, your your role as a CEO is to maximise profits for shareholders. You can't do anything else by law. So that's enshrined in law, and. Um, so what does that mean in terms of what you're talking about? What, what If a corporation's only um, objective is to maximise profits for shareholders, the biggest obstacles to doing that are, one, are environmental uh, constraints, i.e. governments telling you or local communities saying you can't do that. It's paying uh, wait, uh, proper wages to your workers. Uh, it's having uh, a, a big staff. Um, anything that we value in society um, as a public uh, is seen is an obstacle to that corporate is an obstacle to the corporate form. So corporations and 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 corporations devastate uh, the environment uh, all around the world uh, because it's what they call what is called by corporations and in business schools an externality. Uh, if a corporation and an externality describes a a a result of a transaction uh that uh that, that is not planned but doesn't impact the corporation so if a, if a, if a corporation if a if a corporation is dumping waste in a river uh it doesn't have to deal with that uh because it's a public river uh, and that's an externality it doesn't cost the corporation anything but it impacts the society at large so that's an externality and there's externalities all over the world from corporate um uh, operations and they 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 don't they don't see it as a problem they can't institutionally see it as a problem because if they're not paying for it uh, and it's damaging the environment that's good for them uh it doesn't matter they, they don't want to damage the environment but if that's part of the the profit making process then it, uh, they're not going to complain about it so the corporate uh coup the corporate empire around the world is a attack on public space is an attack on our environment, it's an attack on our labour rights, it's an attack on democracy, it's an attack on everything we should value as a, uh, as a, as a democratic people, essentially. Um, because these the, the corporate form uh, as well is tyrannical. It's not like a, a state, it's not like for, in Britain and the US, it's far from a transparent state that we have, but we do have mechanisms that have been won through centuries of struggle that we can hold power to account for example we have the freedom of information act where we can request information about our government and its different bodies and what they're doing with our tax money there's nothing like that to hold corporations to account uh, if they're not public they don't even need to release uh, hardly any data public co corporations you can't send a freedom of information Act request even though 
a lot of them are getting fat off government contracts. So it's, I would say, yes, it's an attack on the environment. Uh, and you see that all over the place from oil spills to de uh, destroying um, invite the environment and ecosystems around mine sites. Um, just we saw loads of it when we were traveling the world, actually land grabs where you take um, land from um, uh, subsistence farmers and turn it into agribusiness. Um, all, all that kind or seeds seeds is a huge issue in places like india where the corporations like cargill and and others go in and say well we don't want you to do we, we want you to stop your practices that you've done for a thousand years um it's it, it doesn't make us enough money we want you to start buying our seeds uh which which you can only use for one year they don't you can't use again by design so you have to keep buying them um that you just see a disruption of uh, ways of life, um, natural ways of life and natural ways of doing things all over the world by corporations because they need to make every system, every mechanism into one that maximizes profits for themselves. So the environment does not um, uh, does not impinge. And then I'll just finish with this. The obvious most horrific example of this is climate change, right? Um, the oil companies, ExxonMobil, BP, they knew about climate change in the 70s and 80s. They knew what it meant. They knew that it meant that it could wipe out uh, civilization and it could be the end of our species. They've all got grandkids, or a lot of them will have, and kids. But the point is that the corporate form does not allow them to have any morality. I'm not, on an individual level, they might be moral people. But in their job inside a corporation, there's no space to operate in a moral way that protects the environment, that even protects human survival. And that's why I think that the corporation is a devilish economic instrument that has got that has gone that is out of control. Um, and the problem is the instrument itself that we have a society which has a which has a value structure which has been uh, obtained by osmosis by the most powerful um, uh, 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 form of organization in that society, which is the corporation. And we've adopted all their, uh, uh, the, the value systems from the corporate, uh, from the corporation. So, uh, uh, and that's, that's it's, ha it's, it's happened on such a large and generalized, um, uh, in such a large and generalized way that it's impossible to even see now. Corporations and the value, corporate value system is, in, uh, has infested so much of our society that most people don't even see it. Um, and that's the other thing to go back to your original question about why it's silent. I think that it's part of it is it's such a total system that it, it, it's, it's so assumed. When you're born now, um, you grow up in a society that is so dominated by corporations that you never even problematize that because it's just so total like the idea that you would ever go to like a, 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 a well in the states like if you'd ever go to a hospital and not have to uh, pay or a, a corporation or an insurance company for your for your um for your uh health like it is so ingrained in us now that corporations have to run everything and have to do everything that's the only way that efficiency can 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 take hold that um uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I think that it's a, just to conclude, it's a war on on every civilized part of society. And we do need somebody to point out that it isn't uh, being privately run isn't more efficient. It isn't more cost effective. It isn't a better way to run a system. That has not been proven to be the case whatsoever. That argument has completely fallen on its face. It's the opposite. That's the irony. It's the opposite. Like for example, in Britain. 
we're now moving away from the NHS, which was is kind of was was for a long time uh, 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 the greatest pride of Britain. You know, it was the it was a, it was a really well run, uh, well funded um, institution that um, provided healthcare at the at the point of uh, delivery uh, for free to anyone. And we're dismantling now, now and building a system more like the US, which is some of the worst outcomes uh, in terms of health results per, uh, per dollar spent or whatever it is in the world. Uh, and uh, and but we're moving that way, not because, and it's not because there's been any rational analysis that that's the better way to do it. It's because the the analysis that, that gets prevalence is one that has been uh, that has resources and the one and the corporations are putting tons of money into think tanks and academic institutes and whatever it is that promote this idea that everything has to be run privately and that's the only way to do it efficiently. Um, it's really extremist and actually Milton Friedman, who's kind of the godfather of a lot of neoliberal thinking, he would before before the seventies he was like those ideas were seen as extremist. They, and they are extremists, but they became what we, what we call centrism now, um, and that is that's that that has to be taken on uh, head uh, uh, head first. And and like you said, like that it's a complete lie. We have been speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard. They are co-authors of Silent Coup: How Corporations overthrew democracy and i just want to tell everybody make sure that they understand we have only barely dipped our toe in the water here when it comes to the corporate takeover of democracy this is not just takeover but overthrow of democracy this is a very intense and very deep and thick in information book and you should all check it out because this is what people were you know warning about back when the show started in 1996 this is what people were warning about 30 years before that 40 years before that this is exactly what everybody was saying was going to happen and it has we have one last question for each of you and as always it is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response claire we'll start with you so you write from you and uh, matt write that from el salvador to south africa where we would go next in our investigations we hear a variation of the same thing that surely the government officials who signed up to the international investor state legal system didn't know what they were getting into they couldn't have known that they're country's independence would be at stake when they ceded power to the system and its treaties and its tribunals. But it was clear in black and white on our tray tables, some did know from the start and make their concerns clear. A block of of developing uh, countries had opposed it to defend their sovereignty. The system was set up despite this. So, Claire, is this system now coming back to roost in the United States as the U.S. domestically experiencing unintended blowback from corporate rule undermining the sovereignty of developing economies. Is that process now being turned on the American people? And was that the point? Do you think that that turning that system back onto the American people will finally lead to a movement here in the U.S. to challenge that system? Oh, I think that's more than one question. <laughs> I know it's like three. I know I, I started. I started riffing there at the end. So I guess that's my bigger, my biggest point. Do you think that uh, this that the system coming back to roost will finally show the people of the United States that this is a system that needs to be challenged and will? Well, uh, I think one can only hope, and to a certain extent, however, um, I. 
I, I see where you're going with that. And um, okay, let me let me take the first question first. Yes, this yes, the systems that we've looked at in this book have um, come home to roost in the sense that they were uh, primarily set up with the interests of wealthy European countries and the U.S. in mind and their their corporate uh, interests in mind. Um, and since that set up, uh, these the systems and strategies that we've looked at in the book uh, really have gone global and so do affect now all every country in the world. Um, so the U.S. can also be sued over policies uh, at international tribunals by other companies. Um, the U.S. has also entered it fully entered on into the um, race to the bottom of uh, where you have different cities competing and regions competing against each other, giving corporations tax breaks in exchange for um, setting up factories and other things in, in, in their areas. Um, again, with huge, like really big time scales, like an anti-democratic time scales attached to these, you know, when you're giving like 30 year tax breaks, um, you're, you're, you're delaying any, effectively trying to delay any possible debate or change of mind on that for decades. Um, so we, so yes, things have come back, are coming home to roost, I think. Um, I, could that lead to the situation self-destructing or more resistance emerging? Potentially, I, I think there is a relationship between um, the political, global, corporate, political project that we describe in the book and uh, increasing rates of um, income and other forms of inequality that we are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis and people are are seeing and, and, and um, rightfully getting upset, getting more and more upset about. Um, so the these systems have also enabled U.S. corporations to um, dramatically accelerate their their own wealth, their executive pay, et cetera, and so increasing in income and other inequalities probably also within the U.S. Um, uh, but I I I think come back to what I said before. I think the the process of destructing, like deconstructing the systems that have been created to enshrine corporate power around the world and, and building something new. I think that is a long-term project. So um, I don't think it, it it is something that we're going to see um, disappear or get dismantled tomorrow, but the work to start that dismantling and that disappearance can start today. Yeah, we had a lot of guests on our show maybe 20, 30 years ago, who, 20, 25 years ago, who were saying that you just can't, the problem, one of the problems with the neoliberalism per se is that it cannot be dismantled. But we have seen where there has been, there have been successes against some neoliberal poli uh, policies and politics around the country. Matt, our question from hell for you is, so has capitalism always been at loggerheads in competition with democracy? for control of the state? Will capitalism always be in competition and with the state for control of society? Um, <laughs> that is a big question. Um, I think that there's, there's, there's varying degrees on a theoretical level. I don't think you can have um, democracy if you have huge amounts of power, economic power, um, in the hands of private interests that are not subject to democratic um, accountability mechanisms. Um, so the corporation, I don't think as a form, 
is conducive to democracy. Having said that, there were times when the corporation was much more constrained by the state. And obviously there is an argument which is made by the right, which is that the corporate form unleashed huge amounts of growth, innovation, um, uh, and economic uh, success. I mean, in, in a sense that it, it's it's the form that was behind the rise of America to superpower status, you know, because although Britain dominated the corporate form in its uh, in the, the, its modern stage from sort of the 16th century to the 19th century, it handed over power to the US at the end of the 19th century, and and all the biggest companies uh, for the next 78 years were American ones. Um, but there were times during that whole period where they, uh, the, the state would take action to restrict their power. And it was very clear who was in control, that a democratic state, um, or maybe not so democratic at certain points, but in theory, a democratic state could constrain a corporation. But what you, but, but I do think that if you unleash this kind of form from the state, there's only one way it's going to go and that is that it's going to become a frankenstein's monster it's eventually going to get powerful enough that it can eat the state that created it i don't think there's any way to stop that unless um uh, because the dynamics uh, are that if it's behind all this economic success and they're getting bigger and bigger they're going to have more and more power to take to eat away at the state and that's what's happened so in theory i would i would i would like uh, uh, I, I would like um industry um to be organized around worker based collectives so i think in, if i was going to have if someone was going to ask me what i what i was ideologically the closest i've ever thought about thought that i've got to in terms of what how i would describe myself is an anarcho syndicalist where um private where industry companies are owned by workers themselves um, and they and they're organized on democratic principles whereby <clears throat> decisions are not made by a CEO or a board they're made by worker collectives um, who are making the products um, and and I think that that is uh, the way that a, a democracy a democratic society would have would run its economic organization I mean it also goes back to that <clears throat> whole Marx Marxist idea of alienation which is a psychological impact of a corporate run society whereby corporations are run hierarchically and workers uh, at the bottom are treated like dirt and have no input in their in the, the big decisions about where the company's going they have no creative role in designing the the company's products or the company's uh, strategies or whatever it is and what that creates is just an alienated class of people who are just essentially robots. They go to work, they work on a production line, whatever it is, they work in Costa Coffee or whatever it is. Those jobs in themselves are not um, dehumanizing. They're not, um, uh, they, they don't need to create alienation. Even if you're working in Dunkin' Donuts behind the counter or Costa Coffee, if you have if you if that if don't if Costa Coffee and Dunkin Donuts were organized along democratic principles and the people working behind the counter had some holding in the company and had some ownership and had some democratic rights designing that company that would that that creates a whole different psychology because you are uh, uh, you have agency so I think that that is the form that I that, that I would prefer that our uh, economic organization was based on 
Um, I, d I don't know how you get uh, how you get rid of the corporate form now because the other thing is now we live in a, in a world where the Cold War finished. There is no other model. The Soviet model wasn't one that I was particularly uh, um, uh, fond of either. But in but but now you have two, two superpowers, right? You're the US and its allies, and you have got China, and China is um, is capitalism on steroids. Like me and me and Claire went as part of uh, we actually haven't talked about this, so I won't open a can of worms. But we went to um, a special economic zone in China called Shenzhen, which was opened in 1980, which was its first special special economic zone. And these are like areas where which are just like corporate utopias where corporations can do whatever they want. Labor laws don't apply. Uh, there's different tax regimes. There's different import export uh, regimes, um, and that was just like. Or a capitalist nightmare. Um, uh, workers had very little rights. There were surveillance cameras everywhere. Um, there was uh, uh, there was a sense that the work was even more disempowered than in in the West. And this is in communist China, you know. So there is no at the moment in terms of like grand forces, uh, superpower forces. There's no alternative to the model that we that we see corporations are running riot. Uh, and but having said that, I'll finish with on a hopeful note because I think it was important what Claire said actually about the um, the fact that this system isn't static and it's not um, it, it appears strong and it appears all powerful, but I think it's actually quite fragile. And you see that that you can't it, it is vulnerable to well organized people based movements. One example that I mentioned earlier is the Zapatistas in 1994. They were explicitly um, uh, launched their uprising on the first uh, against NAFTA, which was the free trade agreement between the US, Mexico, and Canada. Um, and they won. And they didn't even have to, they, they, they famously, their, their thing was they, they, their uprising, they had wooden guns. They had guns that were carved out of wood. It was a symbolic thing. So they didn't, no one, no one was, they didn't shoot, there was no, no one died, but they won. And I went to Mexico. Uh, about 10 years ago and went to uh, the Zapatista-controlled areas in Chiapas. And they have 13 what are called caracols, which are like autonomous areas in Chiapas where the state is not allowed by law to go into, the military and state is not allowed to go. And that was won by struggle. Uh, and they are, obviously there's no corporations in there as well. So, and we, we did see that everywhere we went, there was amazing resistance movements. Claire talked about El Salvador. Again, they were they 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 through struggle they won they, they they booted out companies that were that were treating uh, the local communities badly and and destroying the environment. They also were the first country ever to ban metallic mining, um, and and then um, uh, Bolivia, uh, Evo Morales, his government uh, and and his successor now Luis Arce, they've had huge successes in in taking on corporate power and running a successful economy, which has brought poverty down massively. So it is possible to do. It's just that behind the whole corporate system is an enforcement mechanism, uh, which ends with the US military, you know, or US regime change. So that's what you've got to guard against as well, um, uh, uh, that there's a whole system that is meant to, that is set up to crush people that try and escape the system. Um, uh, so we've got a lot of a lot of obstacles, but I don't. But I, I am quite hopeful. Um, but the biggest problem I would say is that people just don't know about this stuff. It's not on people's radar. People, when when I explain ISDS systems, the legal system, 
where corporations can sue states, people are just shocked. They're like, that, that can't be real. That there can't be the system. And I'm sort of like, yeah. And it's it's not only it doesn't only exist. It's it's draining money from some of the poorest countries in the world and giving it to the richest corporations every every week. You know, this is an active and growing uh, system. Um, so we need to raise awareness and and raise awareness that I think that corporate power and the corporate coup is the biggest issue of our day in terms of uh, understanding the threats to democracy and the threats to uh, civilized society. It's always surprising and incredibly refreshing that at the end of a conversation like this, our guests say they have hope. It's, it shocks me, but it's just refreshing. We've been speaking with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Find out more about Claire at her website, claireprovost.com. Follow her on Twitter at Claire Provost. Follow Matt on Twitter at Kennard Matt. Thank you so much for both of you being back on the show. You know I'm going to annoy you in the future with more interview requests. I really appreciate you both being back on the show. Thank you so much. This is an incredibly important book, and everybody should read Silent Coup. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks Thank for having you. Me. All right. Yeah. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. And Claire and Matthew. Uh, They describe exactly what crime is being done with that great fortune, a crime that is being perpetrated against all of us. And you're not going to hear an in-depth conversation about the silent coup committed by corporations to take over the world anywhere else but here on This Is Hell. Show your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Not only do you get the bonus weekly podcast with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, Plus the discount on This Is Hell merchandise, you also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced during the Patreon podcast. And the newest feature every week, producer Will Ippen chooses a question from hell for me submitted by a Patreon subscriber, a question that I have not seen nor heard until what what, what, Will asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, why is this hell? Why is this hell? And um, unfortunately, uh, on Twitter and Facebook, we only send out the question from hell uh, on a cycle psychic level um, oh it never got posted yeah it's posted now so oh my god i can't believe i didn't post it oh i've been working so hard on the show lately i forgot to post the question from hell my apologies to everybody do you have any on uh, discord did we i post have, any there uh, discord has been informed but we do have uh one of the benefits of being on patreon is they got the question from hell so Okay, so at least they got it. See, yep. you should get it. All right, so apologies to everybody. It's all posted now. Please check out the question from Wow, I really got to put that on my timer to make sure I do that every week. So anyway, you know the person uh, with our favorite answer wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. So what's Jeff talking about during the moment of truth uh, tomorrow, Dan? Jeff is talking about the... 
while Jeff is foiling the junk hunters and their inquisition. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, I promise, on tomorrow's show. Man, I can't believe I did that. That's the first time that's ever happened. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On May 17, 1949, 74 years ago this week, seasonal farm workers had been on strike for days all across Italy, a country still digging out and trying to rebuild after the devastation of the Second World War. Among the farm workers' demands were an eight-hour workday, decent food and medical assistance, and landowners' compliance with existing labor laws. In other words, a bunch of commies demanding that business actually follow the law. And near the town of Molina... Some 20 miles northeast of Bologna, in the Po River Valley of northern Italy, tempers were running high. Some 6,000 farm workers from nearby villages and provinces had poured into the area for a mass demonstration to protest the use of scab labor by wealthy owners of the region's vast rice plantations. Business violating labor laws, so they hire people who will volunteer to work in those poor working conditions at a lower rate of pay. Yep, that sounds about right. Among the protesters was Maria Margotti, a 34-year-old mother of two who, during the war, had been an active partisan in the resistance against fascism and how... And she now toiled as a mondina, a digger and puller of weeds in the rice fields. See what happens when you resist fascism? end up pulling weeds in a rice field. As the scabs arrived in trucks and on foot, they were confronted by the regular rice workers who tried with some success to convince the scabs to either join in the labor action or turn around and go home. At that point, a contingent of national paramilitary police arrived to break up the demonstration, so the scabs and the labor activists had worked out a deal, had agreed to not have any violence, decided to either go home or join in the cause of the labor activists, and everything was fine. Then the state sends in paramilitaries. After the strikers and scabs refused to disperse, the police began shooting one cop named Francesco Galeati. He opened fire on the workers with a machine gun. 30 workers were injured, but just one was killed. Maria Margotti. Four years would pass before Galeati was finally convicted of Margotti's murder and given the light sentence of six months and 15 days in jail. None of the other police on the scene were persecuted or prosecuted, or persecuted for that matter, nor were any of their superiors, because that's what always happens when police kill those they supposedly serve and protect. Margotti was memorialized in a work song still heard today in the Po Valley rice fields which since last year have been hit by Italy's worst drought in seven decades. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This is Hell. We've got historian Gabriel Winnett, who will will discuss his new N Plus One article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a senator from the unconscious. Gabriel was on the show in July 20. 21 to discuss his then just published book the next shift the fall of industry and the rise of healthcare in the rust belt america and of course as always we will have a moment of truth from jeff dorch and i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host chuck mertz thanks to dan kugler for producing thanks to M- Ronaldo magaldi for today's rotten history see we told you so this 
is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.